0: Welcome to Theology Unplugged. I'm Michael Patton, and it is great to have you. If you're not seeing me, you can go to YouTube and search for Credo House. Credo House is where I put all of the stuff that I upload, all my videos. But if you're just listening, welcome. All of you all subscribe, however you can, to this podcast. Uh, let me hear back from you. I'd love to hear, you have noticed we've been doing lots of stuff, whether, whether it's the blog at credohouse.org or or uploading these files or at my Patreon. It's just been very, very busy lately and uh, kind of in the creative mode. And I'm glad to be back in that after, you know, my sleep problems for so long that had held me back. You can look and see about that as I've uh, posted some videos on that. Really, really interesting. And I do want to encourage people to go look at that because it's just who would have known how important this is and what it did to me and how it uh, messed messed my life up for a long time. But anyway, uh, you can check that out later. I got a really interesting podcast this time, and it is about the 10 most controversial issues in Christian theology, really Protestant theology. And remember, this is inner church. This is is, uh, polemics within the church, not apologetics, most controversial issues or biggest issues for defending the faith, but just going on within the church, kind of infighting. What I have found, and I've been in ministry now for what, nearly 25 years, and I've been teaching theology most of the time. I had a little short stint at uh, Stonebrow Community Church, uh, greatest stint in my life, uh, the six years that I was there uh, serving as a pastor, but even then I was teaching theology. the ten, 10 most controversial issues. Now, this was hard to come up with. It all started with the thought in my mind, wondering why a certain issue is so divisive. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And then I, I started writing about it and thought I'd, I'd write about it. And as I wrote, I was like, well, maybe this one's more divisive. And then I go, no, this one. And so I started categorizing them all and started writing them all down. And in the end, I came up with 10 issues that are the most controversial. So let's start. Drum roll, please. All right. First, we start number 10. Remember, this is a countdown. It's not uh, just a list. This is my countdown. If you disagree, let me know. If I've left something out, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, But number 10, the doctrine of hell. And this is just asking questions like, does hell really exist? That is probably the main one there. Some other controversies have gone on for a long time. But uh, more today than uh, ever before, or at least ever before that I've seen, that uh, people are asking whether or not hell really exists. And this is where you come up with annihilationalism. Do people just go to hell for a little while, and then eventually they go out of existence? There is uh, issues of of uh, you know second chance theology or even issues of universalism you find within the church people believing that eventually God will reconcile all of creation to himself so that's every person there's nobody going to hell I don't subscribe to that. I do subscribe to a traditional view, not the purpose of this podcast right now to defend the traditional view. I'm just telling you about the controversies that are going on. Of course, within the doctrine of hell too, you've got the controversies, infighting about what is the nature of hell. Is it literal fire? Is it darkness? Is it it a bottomless pit? All descriptions in the Bible, which one is it? I mean, can can it be all of them? Darkness and fire? It doesn't seem like it would work out. I've seen people try to reconcile those, but I I just think uh, the Bible is using metaphors to talk about a very, very bad place that we don't want to go. And some people believe it's just separation from God. And I do believe it's separation from God. But um, I don't know about the nature of hell. I don't know what I, what I would say. I don't, I don't think we should take a position exactly on the nature of hell. I think in the end we just need to say it's, it's really, really bad. It's not a place you want to go. I have a, a hope, even though I believe hell is eternal, I do, and I can defend that, and I think the defense is strong, I hope I'm wrong, okay? <laughs> I really do. I hope I'm wrong. So that's number 10. Number nine, the doctrine of the atonement. Once again, this is something that is more recent. This is something you find whenever, just like hell, uh, the existence or the rise of what was called the emerging church, no longer called that, but it's more of postmodernism, people's confusion, rightly so, understandably so, people are confused, so many different options out there, they've been taught only one way for so long, been indoctrinated, and so they finally are able now in the last 20, 25 years to get out of their circles and see what other people's views are. And as this has happened, this has reopened the doctrines, most of the traditional doctrines that we have held and taken for granted for a long time. Now, sadly for some of you, you <laughs> to hear about me I'm traditionalist. I think every one of the traditional views can be defended. Now, I hold to some of them stronger than others, but whenever it comes to the Doctrine of the Atonement, number nine, the issue is whenever Christ went to the cross, it's not the issue of whether he went to the cross. Everybody knows he did. But why did he go to the cross? What was, what was he doing on the cross? And those those, uh, those few hours that he was there, during that day, I think it was six hours that you have that uh, uh, things were were happening. Um, that w- w- what was going on? How how does the cross of Christ take care of our sin? That's the question. And here's here's why it's an issue. A lot of people today, um, Eastern Orthodox, have always held this position, but a lot of people today do not any longer subscribe. Or at least not as fully to the doctrine of substitutionary, vicarious substitutionary atonement, which basically means this that Christ went to the cross to take upon ourselves his sins, (laughs) or excuse me, our sins. And that was required, this is key, this is key, that was required by the Father, God the Father. It wasn't required by nature. It wasn't required by Satan, ransom to Satan theory. It was required by the Father. And so whenever we, uh, whenever people are punished for their sins, then they are punished by the Father. And sin has a an, a an atonement that can be taken by Christ since he was God and since he lived a sinless life and qualified to be the new Adam or the second Adam. He could take the sins of all mankind upon himself. And so, did. was it the Father that required it, or was it Satan that required it, or was it just nature that required it? Uh, is the atonement just an example for us to follow and how to obey God and submit to his will? Uh, of course, like I said, I hold to the traditional view, vicarious substitutionary atonement, that he actually, on the cross, took our sins and bore the wrath of God himself. In a way, his own wrath, because you know he's part of the Trinity, his own requirements. But as a man, he bore the wrath of the Father. That's number eight. Number not or number that was number nine. Number eight is Roman Catholicism, and maybe if I now that I'm thinking about this, I might put this at ten. Roman Catholicism, because it, while it is an issue, it's not as big an issue, at least from a cultural standpoint within the church but maybe so. Uh, but this is basically this. Roman Catholicism, remember this is from coming from a Protestant. This is the top ten issues in in the Protestant church. Roman Catholics would have probably a whole other ten. But are Roman, maybe not this way, and let me put it one way first. Are Roman Catholics saved? That's one way to put it. Another way to put it is, does the Roman Catholic church preach or have the true gospel, or does does the gospel of Rome save? Those are the questions. Now, again, with this, I have changed uh, quite a bit, I guess. I, I don't know if this is a traditional view or not, but whenever it comes to Roman Catholicism, I, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I do not believe that their view, their gospel, that basically says, yes, you have to trust in Christ. Yes, he died for our sins and rose from the grave, all these essential elements, but our faith. Whenever we place faith in Him, it has requirements that follow in order for the faith to be substantiated, to be built upon, for the for the um, uh, treasury of or the treasury of Christ that He bought for us to be applied to us so it's not necessarily automatically a pride. Uh, Roman Catholics have a process justification. You go through a process. You get baptized. You you believe, have confirmation. Then you have to go to confession. You don't commit any mortal sins. If you commit a mortal sin, then you have to go to the priest, get absolution. Uh, venial sins, yes, I are fine. But, and then you have purgatory and all that. Well, th- the whole question is, can somebody... Who does not believe? Let me put it this way: I used to go out and evangelize at uh, whenever I was at DTS out on the streets doing street evangelism, and one of the first thing uh, the first thing I would ask them is, if you were to die today, how sure are you you would go to heaven? And if they said anything besides absolutely sure, if they said anything besides, you know, don't know one out of 10, a scale of one to 10, I'm a 10, then I would say, whoa, this person's not saved. If they said, well, I'm only a nine because maybe, you know, I haven't done enough good stuff, then I'd say, oh, you're not saved automatically because you have included works in your gospel or in your understanding of Christ. And while I do not include works in my understanding of Christ, uh, and the atonement and our salvation. I do not believe that we work in order to get saved. I do. I believe we work because we are saved. It's a big difference. But um, I don't believe that just because you think there is a requirement that your faith in Christ is null and void. Now, it may be harder to have true faith in Christ if you're placing faith in other things. But over the years, I've realized that we as Christians often place our faith in other things. Um, Let's go from one point. You've got somebody who believes that faith alone in Christ saves you, except for you have to be baptized as well. Well, are they not saved? I would say, of course they can be saved. They just have a requirement that they shouldn't have. I'm getting really into this. This is probably a whole podcast. But anyway, so can Roman Catholics be saved? I say yes, but we need to give them the fullness of the gospel. That's why I would say to a, any friend of mine that's in the Roman Catholic Church. I'd say, listen, I'm not saying you're not saved. Uh, you, if you trust in Christ and the same Christ I do, hooray, let's celebrate that. But at the same time, you don't understand the benefits as well as, as the scripture teaches us and that we do not have that burden that you carry on your back. Please let me get that burden off your back. Okay, that's number eight. Number seven. Now, of course, you guys probably thought I was going to put this at number one. What do you think it's going to be? Yes, of course, Calvinism and Arminianism. That is at number seven. Boy, if we got six more that are bigger than that, that's that's pretty big, huh? But Calvinism and Arminianism, of course, is the... The predestination debate, the free will debate, and all that is included in that. And so the question is, whenever God, whenever God elected us to salvation, which everybody believes He did, that's what the Bible says. It's not something we debate. If you're, if you're really understanding of the issue, uh, everybody knows that election happened. It's just, was election unconditional or conditional? If it's unconditional, God elected us without referring to our works, our, any, anything at all, before time began, whenever he created us, out of the mystery of his will, not flipping a coin. There's a reason why he did it. and There's a reason why he elected us. We have done nothing to get elected. Uh, he's It's the secret will of God. He chose certain people to be saved, and those are the ones who will be saved. We don't know who they are, but... Um, that's why we preach the gospel to all creation. Uh, and then the other side is Arminians, uh, and uh, it's not just Arminians. I mean, a lot of people can fall into this category that believe in some type of conditional election where God elected those who he foresaw would believe in him or God elected Christ is another way to put it. And all those who are found in him automatically in order to be found in him, you have to, believe in him but i think it just waters it down and makes it meaningless to me i mean it, it is a hard doctrine yes whenever you talk about election but uh, uh i think uh, that the position that i hold to that is that is i call compatibilism or I, I, not only i call it that but that's what it's called where you say human freedom is real we have real freedom and responsibility But God's sovereignty in that is real as well. He is in control of these things. How do those two come together? I don't know. I don't try to reconcile them. Uh, I just understand that it's a mystery. And I think there's a lot of mysteries God calls upon us to accept that are hard And that's the reason why. I mean, it's just like life. Going through life is hard. And God puts us through these things in order to test us, in order for us to grow. He does the same thing many times with doctrine. If we try to make them all more palatable so that they're easier to believe and we don't have to struggle and wrestle with God, then I think you're missing the way God's MO. This is the way he does things. There's a lot of things that are confusing and hard. Number six eschatology. And again, all things involved in eschatology. Has Christ already come? That's a big deal. You know, in the last 20, 30 years, the uh, the preterist view, did Christ come in AD 70? Was that the second coming? If that was, I tell you, it's a bummer. Um, because we, not, not too much changed and not too much was overcome. The whole book of revelation and Thessalonians and all that, they don't make much sense to me, but, uh, that's one question. Has Christ already come in AD 70 or how about, of course, millennial, millennialism? Are you a pre Are you a postmillennialist? Did Christ, is Christ coming again in the future to set up a kingdom for a thousand years? Um, or is the millennium going on right now? Did it start a while back? There's also post millennialism. There are post millennials too, which believe that uh, Christ will come after the millennium. All millennialism says we are in the millennium right now. Then you got premillennialism who believes that the millennium is yet future, I still hold to that. And then, of course, even within that, you've got the rapture debate and the tribulation debate. So that is number six because there's so much to it. Sometimes it's even you know gone up to number one because of how much passion is involved. Then, of course, number five, creation, evolution. Not really of course because, again, you might think this is higher. Um, creation, evolution. Did God use evolution to create the world or did he do it ex nihilo not ex nihilo everybody believes it's ultimately ex nihilo out of nothing uh but did he do a special creation just kind of taking the bible more literally uh the first two chapters of genesis and there's no room for evolution some people believe there's room for evolution some people don't and then uh, of course the young earth old earth debate is the earth only you know six seven eight nine ten thousand years old a young earth or is it billions of years old is the universe you know 15 billion years old like most scientists believe i on this position this is where i take the the light uh, this is where i claim the most ignorance i'm not a scientist and even whenever i hear scientists it's hard to trust them i don't think it, it just depends on the data that you have how much data do we have and what is that process through and i think everybody should say the creation of the world is a mystery. Somehow the first two chapters of Genesis is correct, and somehow whenever we we interpret natural theology in our scientific method today, that is correct as well. They both can't be correct and be contradictory. So I leave it as a mystery, but it's still a big debate. Some people may move it all the way up to be in a debate of salvation, or just at least the, the it's, it has major impact on the health of the church. I just say, you believe the Bible, and we're not really sure about some of these things. Of course, the creation of the entire world in one chapter, and then kind of rehashing it in chapter two of Genesis, that's a short amount of time for God to give to such a big thing. And what that tells me is... He doesn't want to tell us anything except for that he did it. He's behind it, and sin entered into the world, and we are infected. Number four, the charismatic gifts. Um, of course, you know what that is, charismatic gifts. Charismatic gifts are the gifts. Not not, not all gifts are debated. I mean, for some people, like maybe hyper or uh, is it hypermillennialism? I mean, hyper-dispensationalism. Hyper-dispensationalists may not believe in any gifts at all, but most people believe that there are spiritual gifts. Um, and uh, there are certain gifts like tongues, like uh, the gift of being able to do miracles, healings, uh, the gift of prophecy. I think the gift of prophecy is the most controversial. Second to that is only uh, is healings. Uh, gift of prophecy stands out more because you're speaking on behalf of God, the authority that comes with that. But that is rightly so controversial. And uh, just like some of the others, I still hold to my traditional position. I am not a continuationist. I believe there are a certain set of gifts that seem like, that at the very least, they are... Um, they are not in effect, in effect, the, to the same degree, or at least they are not normative for the church today. There may be special occasions where these goes on, these go on, but I've sought these my entire life. I mean, every charismatic I've talked to says you're not truly seeking it. They don't know my heart. I really am seeking it. I've never seen it. I've never seen it legitimate. Uh, my mind is God's, and it's too precious for me to give it over to somebody, that to charlatanism. And uh, all I've seen is stuff that can be very easily seen as charlatanism. And whenever God speaks, whenever he does miracles, at least in my mind, here's what happens. It's undeniable. It's not something that, I mean, you can deny the source of where it came from as, you know, the Pharisees did with Christ miracles, but you can't deny parting of the Red Sea. You can't deny whenever somebody is a prophet, the things that they have done to establish themselves as prophet. prophets. God cares so much about his word. We've got to be careful with that. But charismatic gifts debate, that's number four. Number three, what is number three? Number three is, I didn't know how to put this. This is hard. This is hard to know how to put it. But you'll understand what I'm talking about, right, whenever I say it, whenever I explain it. But cultural ecclesiology, cultural ecclesiology. And this is basically trying to understand how is the church to engage with the world. That's one part of it. And another part is what is the purpose of the church, at least not the church as the body of Christ, but the church as a local unit that meets together. And, well, what is the purpose? Let's say, what do you—why do you—what is— what is Sunday morning about? And so, whenever you talk about cl- cultural ecclesiology, we're asking the question of um, uh, whenever you whenever you plan a church service, are you planning it for the unbeliever or for the believer or for both? Uh, so the idea here is one side may say, well, you know, th- the, your your liturgy and everything should be set up and tailored towards unbelievers. So you come in and don't make them cross too big of a bridge to come to the church. Make the church as comfortable as possible. Make it look like the culture as much as possible. This may go from anything from having coffee and donuts in the morning. Uh, You you may have a buffet there of some sort of breakfast to whenever you have music is it a is it is it a band that is playing is there is there smoke and everything else is it is it the type of stuff you might see in the culture and then after that you're talking about what is it that I preach? How is it that I preach? Or am I preaching to Christians that I'm trying to make more mature, and so my focus is upon them, and so I can get deeper and deeper and deeper, or am I assuming that I'm talking to non-believers, therefore I keep it light, I keep it topical, I uh, every time I'm, my whole goal is to present the gospel and bring more people into the church. Now, Again, this is this is a battle that is ongoing. It is a deep-seated battle. It is one that is that is very, very um, uh, emotional for many, many people. That's why it makes it all the way up to number three. So that is number three. And then number two, this is kind of new to the list. I guess you would say, at least in the top ten, it is very, very new to the list. But this is the homosexuality and the church and this is basically the question of does the church accept homosexuality i didn't say does the church accept homosexuals because that'd be just like saying uh does the church accept sinners but uh is oh another question even before that is is homosexuality a sin is being gay a sin is the practice a sin what if two people that are in love that are of the same sex get married and are faithful to each other. Uh, is, that, is that acceptable then to God? Or is there something inherent in the Bible, inherent theology, inherent truth that says God, uh, th- that homosexuality is always a sin. It is never his will, at least his perfect will, for people to get married that are the same sex, to practice sexual relations in the same sex, and so on. Uh, it's kind of funny. Like I said, it's It's new. But it's new because it's new within our culture. And I'm traditionalist with this. I do believe, I can't imagine having those inclinations. I can't, I was, I was born with all kinds of inclinations towards sin. I have given in to them all at one time or another in my life. So I'm not trying to put myself on a high horse. If I was born with those inclinations, I imagine just like all the other ones, I would to fall to them. I'm not... I've never had those inclinations. I don't understand them. But there's a lot of things I don't understand. You've got to be real careful with this and uh, put people in the hands of God. But I do believe that it is a sin. It is very clear in the Bible, not just kind of clear, not just, you know, a couple places. The arguments can be made. The arguments against it are very, very weak. I've read them all. I've read the books. It's not there. I'm not just saying that. Uh, I hope you know me well enough by now to say, you know, I, I'm I'm balanced whenever I look at these things, and I just don't hold I don't hold on to traditional things just because they're traditional. But homosexuality in the church is an issue. Um, is it okay? Is it okay for gays to get married? And then, of course, is it okay for you to be a member of a church and be gay, uh, even if you do not believe that it is right? That, so on and so forth. Then finally very closely related and closely related in the same reason because the culture and what we're going through as a culture all the stuff that's going on right now is at such a high point in our culture these have always been somewhat controversial but right now sexual anthropology and you know at first i just had women in the church that That's what it usually is. But sexual anthropology, I think, covers it a little bit better because what we're talking about here is not only can women be pastors or elders, or not only can a woman teach a man, it's the more fundamental question of did God create the sexes, each sex, man and woman, with inherent distinct giftedness or characteristics that are four roles that he created them with in other words are people gifted or are people um, doing things in church according to their gifts or according to their roles and one side would say well it doesn't matter about the sex uh, whatever it is you're gifted in, that's what you do, and it's a very understandable argument. I don't hold to it. I do believe that there are certain roles that God created for men and women, and we are to fulfill those roles the best we can. We are to celebrate those roles. We are to we are to uh, train people up in those roles. And the further we get away from that, celebrating and training people up in them, the further we're going to get away from the roles actually being seen. Men, women are scared to be women. Men are scared to be men. Or another way, men do not uh, exemplify, or do not do not uh, celebrate, or or they do not honor the role of the women sometimes, and then therefore women do not honor their own role and seek to usurp or to overcome. Uh, or would be like a man, as uh, Genesis said, in the curse. So I think it's all part of the curse. I think this is ongoing. I think if if we all understood and celebrated our individual roles and understood how important they are, that one role is not more important than another. I mean, nobody could ever look at this life and understand if they've lived long enough that, that m- being a motherhood, the nurturing aspect of motherhood is not as important as the fathering aspect of leadership and provision it, it may be more important to provide in the sense just so you can have what you need that is necessary to survive from a physical standpoint but mothers provide so much more than that women nurturing the world women nurturing their children when if we do not recognize how essential that is and how important that is Um, I think it will be devalued and we'll have these problems. But anyway, sexual anthropology, that is number one. Tell me what you think about these. What did I get right? What did I get wrong? What did I leave out? Uh, But I I would love to hear from you. Also, don't forget to check out my Patreon page. That's how I get supported, Patreon. Uh, You go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, And you go forward slash C. Michael Patton. That's pretty much where you can find me everywhere. C. Michael Patton. Forward slash C. Michael Patton. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Luckily, there's not many more C. Michael Patton, so I've kind of uh, taken that over. or I I have uh, had a monopoly on that name. But Patreon, C. Michael Patton. There's a membership there. You can get all kinds of gifts. You can see more posts. Uh, If you want to see this post, you can go there or you can go to credohouse.org and find it. That is my blog. But anyway, I'm going to let you go. It's been great to have you. Thanks for showing up for Theology Unplugged, and we'll see you next time.